Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for civil engineers who want to succeed. All right, in today's episode, I took another road trip, this time into New York City, and I interviewed Stephen Morse of Grant Engineering. I know Stephen for a while because he did some work with my wife, who's also a civil engineer, on a project some years ago, and we kept in touch. And I kind of knew that he started a company from scratch, basically himself, and he's been building it up. And I noticed that it was getting bigger and bigger. And when you try to start a company, especially in New York City, where it's very expensive, if you're able to get traction and grow, you're definitely doing something right. And so finally, I reached out to Stephen. I told him I'd love to come to his office and sit down with him and learn a little bit about how he grew the company, the process he went through. And so that's what we talk about in this interview. And he really dove into a lot of different things in this interview and a lot of financial issues or challenges or things that he did to help to get his firm to grow. And I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a second when I intro him, but it was really great just to sit down with someone who's kind of really gone through the trenches of going from a company of one person, literally in his apartment, to now growing it and having his own office in New York City. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you all the way through to the end segment where he gave some really interesting advice at the end and even a book that he recommends reading that I've read since we had the interview. So before we get into the main segment of our show, I do want to remind you to please stick around until the end of this podcast episode for my essential career advancement tips. I'll be sharing info on where to find practical advice and the best resources for your licensure exam, including an exclusive 20% discount available only to our listeners thanks to our sponsor, PPI. You won't want to miss that. I also want to mention that at the Engineering Management Institute, we do provide coaching and training to engineers and engineering organizations to help engineers to become more effective managers and powerful leaders. And while our online Engineering Management Accelerator workshop has been very popular, it's a five-week online course that runs five times per year. The next sessions will be in September and October. We have also customized training as well. Many firms approach us and say, listen, we have X amount of managers that we need training for. We like your curriculum and some of the things you're doing, but we want it to be specific to our company. So in that case, we have very detailed and designed engineering management training needs assessment that we can administer for the company, collect that data, and put together a report to really help your firm build the right program for you. Because some of our stuff may not work for you specifically, depending on your needs. And so we have multiple options available. If you're interested in any kind of training, you can feel free to visit our website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org or give our offices a call at 201-857-2384. Now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's civil engineering conversation so you get to know a little bit more about him before we dive in. Stephen Morse is a licensed professional engineer with a diverse technical and management background in domestic and international building and infrastructure development and rehabilitation projects. He is the owner of Grant Engineering, which is a professional engineering services firm 
that provides planning, design, inspections, and construction support services for commercial and residential real estate, governmental agencies, and public institutions. His strengths include management of scopes, schedules, budget, and labor resources. You'll hear in this interview is, in the beginning, like many business owners that start out, Stephen maybe wasn't focused as much on some of the finance and business operations of his business, but you can tell now that he's very thoughtful about those same issues. You can just hear it throughout the interview. All right, now it's time to jump into today's civil engineering conversation. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome on Stephen Morse. Stephen is a licensed professional civil engineer. He's the owner and founder of Grant Engineering, which he founded in 2006. Stephen, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you for having me, Anthony. So Stephen and I met some time ago. Stephen happened to work with my wife on a project at her previous firm where they both worked together and our paths have crossed a few times and I always wanted to talk to Stephen on the podcast because he, like many civil engineers, made the decision to go out on his own and start to build his own firm, which is something that I'm sure is rewarding, but also very challenging. So I want to talk a little bit about that with him today. However, Stephen, before we start, just in your own words, maybe you can give kind of a overview of your career up to this point before we jump into that part of it. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today and chat with you for a few minutes this morning. I graduated from Merrimack College in 2001 with a civil engineering degree. It was a co-op program, which was great because I was able to work for four or five engineering companies by the time that I graduated from undergrad. Last company that I worked with was GRB Environmental during school, last internship I had, and they made me a full-time offer to join them once I graduated. So I was with GRB for five years right out of school. They're a, a firm in Midtown, Manhattan. And we focused on environmental work, really, uh, site assessments and site remediation. So petroleum, fuel oil spills, uh, industrial sites with denapple conditions and throughout the tri-state area, really. Uh, it was a, a time where there was a lot of rezoning happening in New York City and uh, Williamsburg, for example. There was lots sure. of work there. So it was really heavy. My early career was heavy in environmental, and I left GRB 2006 and went to work for Lewis Berger for a few years, there downtown uh, Manhattan. And there I worked mostly on public contracts, so Department of Design and Construction, Economic Development Corporation, similar environmental type work, but also started to migrate into geotech a bit. At that time, I was also going through uh, grad school, so Columbia part-time, at night, so it was a, a busy time of time of life. In I formed Grand Engineering in 2006. As I was getting ready to leave GRB, uh, I was encouraged to set the company up by some folks that I knew at uh, at Langen Engineering. Actually, at the time, I did a little bit of work for Langen at the beginning, some little bits, but it wasn't enough to sustain myself really. So I ended up going to Lewis Berger and was there for about three and a half years which was great. And finally, when I made the decision to leave Berger, that was when I started Grand Engineering full-time in 2010. All right. So you started the company in 2006 officially. And then in 2010 is when you started working full-time on Grand Engineering. Is that right? That's right. 
Let's talk about why behind the whole decision, the whole idea of wanting to own your own company, you know, take an entrepreneurial path, which is something, listen, engineering in itself, civil engineering is a very complex discipline. There's lots of things that go on and lots of projects, especially we're here in Stephen's office in New York City where there's just tons of different things happening on projects. So adding the entrepreneurial flair into it brings a whole nother dynamic. So why was this something that you wanted to do? There are two main reasons that I point to or talk about when I have these kind of conversations. The first thing is, fortunately for me in my, my household when I was young, my mother was and is an entrepreneur. So my whole childhood, I watched her. She's a seamstress. And I watched her own and manage a costume shop. Uh, she would create costumes for, for plays and movies, TV shows, and also other custom type uh, upholstery things like curtains and pillows and all these things. But she, to this day, uh, just loves her work and loved working for herself. And uh, you'd hear the sewing machine going at four o'clock in the morning sometimes. And sometimes she was still up from the day before. And sometimes she was waking up early to get a jump start on things. But uh, I always appreciated her passion for running her own business. So I think to some degree, it was built into the DNA early on. Secondly, is looking at 2007, 2008, macroeconomics, and also the sort of population of who engineers were at that time. So the a recession, of course. Thinking about the economy going down, for me, that kind of triggered the idea of, hey, maybe now's the time to get in, right? Because for the next few years, folks are going to be reorganizing themselves, getting, it's not going to stay like this forever, right? It's going to, the economy is going to come back. So trying to go in at, at a relatively low point was part of the calculation. And then also looking at who engineers were and are, of course, after World War II, 50s, 60s, a lot of folks were going into engineering, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, NASA, all this exciting stuff. And then you have a gap into the 80s, you have folks going into finance, you have 90s.com. And so a lot of the engineers that were getting themselves set up in their careers in the 50s and 60s, starting to age out, retire move on, and there's a, a talent gap. Now you see over the past you know, 10 years or so, five, 10 years, folks are starting to go back into the science, technology, math kind of fields, and that's very exciting. So I kind of saw that there was an opportunity to start a business and financially that there would be an opportunity to fill a, a talent gap there. First part of your answer, seeing how passionate your mother was as an entrepreneur is very inspirational, but I'm glad that you also had all this these other thoughts behind it in terms of the economy, the low point, this gap in engineering talent. Because I think one of the things that happens with a lot of entrepreneurs that I see in engineering as well is they get fired up about being entrepreneurial and want to start their own business. But it's a very challenging thing to do and you've got to have a strategy around it. And it's obvious that you really thought it out and looked at everything. I mean, I I started my training firm around the same time in 2009. A lot of people say, yeah, what a terrible time to start a business. But as you put there, it's not necessarily a bad time to start a business. It depends on the business you're in. It depends on your industry. It depends on what's going on. And you saw it as an opportunity and that companies might be changing things, maybe looking to hire subs or small firms and you know, cut expenses, do other things, which obviously proved to be valuable. So tell us a little bit about kind of your path here since you started, how it started. And I mean, obviously you're up and running now, you have staff, so we can assume that you've done well, you've gotten to this point, which isn't easy for a lot of small businesses. 
I'm sure it was, there was ups and downs along the way, but take us through kind of the, the progression of the company. Thank you. So for the first uh, year or two, I was working on my own. So you know, employees would pull in sub-consultants as needed to round out teams, but for the most part, I was doing a lot of the work myself. So I was selling, doing just everything, and it was very, very exciting. After about a year or so, I started to hire folks. And, you know, the beginning part there was a lot of learning related to how to run a business. Not that it's not now, but it was very, very steep learning curve of local labor laws. What does offer letter really mean? How do you pay taxes? Right. <laughs> uh, learning the basic, what looks basic, but when you're on your own, it's very, can be complex and overwhelming. And as a project manager in my previous experience, Yes, I had some say in hiring and firing, but I wasn't in the executive suite and I wasn't really connected to HR and and knowing how to do, learning how to operate a business. Did you have an office at that time? So the first four years or so, I was running the business out of my apartment in lower Manhattan. And the apartment was set up in such a way where we had separate space for the employees to come to and work from, but it was still an apartment and sure. it did have uh, certain limitations and certain challenges associated with it. And in 2013 was when we moved into the space on Fulton Street, a proper office space. Talk us through that decision period or that process of hiring your first employee. I'm, I'm sure that it's one of the scariest things that a small business owner has to do because all of a sudden you now have to, I mean, listen, if Ideally, you want to be able to pay yourself when it's just you, but if you can't, you try to make it work. But when you have someone now in the books that you have to pay and it's a big commitment, was it just something where you knew that the company was ready and needed that for growth and it was worth you know, figuring all this stuff out? I wish that I could say that those early decisions were related to heavy analysis of workflow and cash flow and <laughs> real thoughtful uh, calculations, but they weren't. It was basically a a feel, thinking about how much work I had to do at that particular time and that I needed some extra hands around to help. Wow. So it was gut. It was a lot of gut feeling. At the beginning, yeah, which is not very advisable. You started to hire, and that was what, in year two, you said, around? Yeah, just about. Okay. So now that would be like around 2012. So then where do we go from there? From there, what does uh, business development look like at this point? Are you doing? Are you working for a lot of larger firms as a sub, or what are your projects looking like at this point? At this point, we work mostly in the private sector. For the last seven, eight years, it was very heavy in residential development, following the market and what's happened here in New York City. So, but over the past two or three years, we've been sort of migrating more into commercial, retail, restaurants, hotels, things like that. And for the most part, we get hired direct by owners. We do get brought into projects by architects and owners reps fairly regularly. And we have some great relationships with some great architects and owners reps. For the most part, they'll bring us into a project team, but we'll get hired directly by the owner. That's what we're seeing. In the early days, business development was a lot of sometimes underpaid or free services just to get relationships going with folks and going to a lot of networking events and just working the phone a lot. Nowadays, there's 
not as much of that. It's really word of mouth and repeat customers that's driving the business. I'm doing very little active marketing for new customers. For the most part, it's doing great work on existing projects and keeping folks happy and continuing to check in and build those existing relationships. Sure, just so the listeners understand where we're at today, how many people work for you today? Grant has 14 full-time employees. All right, so let's jump to another milestone, which I think is a milestone, is getting your first office when you got out of your apartment. Tell us about when that happened and how that went down. It was May of, I believe, 2012. Uh, I believe this is higher soon after the first hires hire. Yeah, there was a a good period of overlap, though, that I remember very distinctly where, uh, you know, folks were coming to my apartment to show up for work at seven thirty and eight o'clock every day. And it it was a lot. It was very, very challenging to make sure you want everybody to have a proper work environment. Right. So making sure everything is clean and put away and everything is (laughs) as much like an office as you could possibly make it. It was enjoyable. Everybody got along really well. It was sort of a, a family-type working environment, which helped establish the culture, I think, of the company that carries through to today. But pretty quickly, I realized that that just was not sustainable, just for myself and for the amount of energy it took to have one space function as two different things for me in my life, work and uh, personal life. So very, very scary to sign a lease in downtown Manhattan, but uh, you just, so many times along the way, you don't know really what the answer is, but you just have to jump. You know, you just have to trust yourself that sure. you're going to make it and uh, trust your, your feelings and your analysis and just go. Was this another situation where you based a lot of it on gut or did you have some more back load, uh, workload projections and stuff like that at this point? Yeah, after about two years or so, I started to get better with cash flow tools and understanding backlog and what those numbers meant. And so... It was okay. It was time to get an office space, and I understood that there was enough to keep us going. And plus, we were starting to see some signs of the economy kind of coming around, and so I was more comfortable at that time. You mentioned the word culture. There's a lot of things I can talk to you about and building a company. I'm sure we won't get to all of it today. But there's so many things as a business owner that you need to focus on. And, you know, listen, in the world of civil engineering, like you mentioned before, we were talking offline, you know, you're doing, you have to be concerned about the quality of the work, you're servicing the customers, you're doing business development. But now your company, that's probably easier when you're smaller because you don't have to worry about staff, right? And like actually building the company, which is really the people that work here. And, and you mentioned the word culture, which is like a whole nother thing that I'm sure you have to focus on as the owner of the business. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you approached that when that became a reality, when you had employees, some of the thought process around how you were going to you know, build a culture, a strong culture. I knew from very early on, just intuitively, that it was something that was very important to me. I want to be excited to come to work every day. And I love engineering. I love project management. I wanted to really love the environment that I was coming to every morning. So it was very important, but I did not know how to build a culture. I thought I did, but I did not. And, you know, we work with humans, right? And folks bring a lot of things uh, with them uh, every day and and have a, a rich life outside of the, our office. Right. And so it's incredibly important to the extent possible. An interview process is so important trying to understand who folks are that you bring into your organization. 
And then day to day, it takes a dedication to connecting with each person as much as possible every day to make sure that they're okay. They're actually okay in their tasks that they're doing for your company, but also that their life is going in a way that they sort of want it to go. And, and if not, you see how you can help within, within the bounds of reason, right? And then you have to be, be willing to walk away from certain relationships when they're not lining up. That part's very hard. Yeah, the reason I ask is because I think sometimes people tend to think that the culture can just happen or, you know, if you hire the right people, everything will be fine. But from the companies that I've seen and people like yourself that I've talked to, it seems like culture is something that you have to work on. It's another part of the company, just like the financials. You need to measure things or else things can go wrong. You need to put your staff in positions or in an atmosphere that makes it fun and that makes it easy to communicate, maybe do activities with them. Would you say that that's something that is something that has to actively be cultivated? It doesn't happen. In my experience, it does not happen by accident. And in fact, if you don't actively manage it, just like anything else, it will, you know, entropy creeps in and, sure. and things start to slip away. So it takes active management on a daily basis. On a daily basis, yeah. sure. All right. So your company was growing. I want to throw something else into the mix here. I know that you were involved, or I don't know if you still are, with Engineers Without Borders. First of all, before we get into that, can you explain what that organization is real quick for the listeners that aren't familiar with it? For me, Engineers Without Borders was very formative in many aspects of my career, but they're a nonprofit organization in the United States. They have a professional level where there are local chapters for professionals. New York City has a quite large chapter. There's maybe 250 professional chapters. Last I looked, uh, about the same number of university chapters. Uh, I could be off on those numbers, but approximately. And the organization uses endeavors to design and build sustainable infrastructure projects in developing communities around the world. So underserved developing communities. For example, one of the projects with the New York City Professional Chapter, I worked on a potable water project mm-hmm. in a fairly rural village in northwestern Kenya. And we designed downhole uh, electric pump. We brought electricity out to a, a health center. It was not on the grid at the time. Didn't have running water. So we designed and eventually constructed downhole about 400 feet below grade water pump, electric pump, up to a, I believe it was 10,000 liter holding tank with a cleaning system and then indoor uh, plumbing. So running water into the sinks inside of the health center. So you worked on the design of this through the, with the chapter and then it was eventually built? That's right. Yeah. And part of the service with Engineers Without Borders is going to, is doing your own fundraising for the project also and then going to the community and implementing the design after a lengthy engagement with the community to make sure that there's significant uh, buy-in from the community for the solution and that there will be ongoing operations and maintenance and management of that solution after it's built. That was an example project that I did with the professional chapter. Later on for three or four years, I was the professional mentor for City College and worked on a small number of projects with them in Central America and also functioned for a few years as the vice president of the New York City chapter. So there was 
the sounds operational like, side of the chapter also. Sounds like all things that would be very beneficial to someone who needs the skills to build their own company. Yeah, there was a lot of that, a lot of learning that happened. Yeah. What made you get into with that organization? Or what made you start there and volunteer there? I started in 04, 05, right when the chapter was starting to be established. And really the very first thing that triggered it was networking. I just wanted to, I was with a small firm at the time. GRB was maybe a dozen people or so. And I wanted to meet other engineers who were in the industry and and working. And that was a, a way to do it. But as it went on, it's just, you start to realize how much capacity you have to give as a person, uh, especially being so fortunate to be here in New York City with all the resources that we have. And it was just an opportunity to give some of my skills back to folks that I thought could benefit from it. I've read a lot about Engineers Without Borders and talked to some other people that have done work there, and it seems like a great organization. And I would highly recommend that anyone getting involved with something like this. I mean, it sounds like, and I think Stephen kind of confirmed it, just explaining all the different aspects of working on a project with an organization like that, that can help you. And in fact, I've worked with companies before, even when I was hiring for an engineering company, these are the types of projects that when you're hiring someone, they'll spend the whole interview talking about them. And you know, it tells someone a lot about a person that you're involved in an organization like that and that you're getting to do all these different things. And a lot of times you can do those things at a younger age than you would get to do them with a company, which I think is very valuable. So let me ask you this question in terms of being a civil engineer. What would you say is a skill set of yours that you feel is a strength of yours that may not be something you would think of when you say the word civil engineer? Is there anything that comes to mind? One of the more challenging parts of the work that I do, and I think a lot of engineers do, is civil engineers do, is being able to communicate back to the rest of the stakeholders why we're doing the performing the scope that we're asked to do. So taking the engineering, the technical language, and being able to communicate that back to the rest of the stakeholders, the developers who might not know, understand why the depth of groundwater is important. Why are we looking for that? What's the difference between clay and, you know, other kinds of soils, for example. So being able to, to communicate both verbally and in writing clearly and quickly is one of the more valuable skills to gain. What would you say to a civil engineer that might be considering starting their own company, thinking about it, knowing, feeling entrepreneurial, feeling like they want to build something? Now that you've been through this, it's been a while, you've built a company to 14 people from your apartment, just you. What advice, I'm sure there's a lot of things you could tell them, but what are a couple of things that jump out to you that you would tell them about to think about or consider? There are two parts to the response, I think. And the first part is related to running the business and making sure that you have a good network of mentors or peers that you trust, that you can reach out to and get advice quickly. And not just other engineers, I'm talking about attorneys, accountants, if you can, folks at banks, for example, folks with human resources experience as much as you can, a network of people that you can reach out to quickly for information. Because there's a lot to know, and you shouldn't even try to know it all. That's not the goal. And the second part of it is the human sort of uh, 
physical part and the emotional part and the mental part. And it takes a heck of a lot of energy. And I could have done a better job preparing my family, my friends, even my own behaviors and patterns with what I was going to attempt to do had I actually known what it was that I was setting out to do. (laughs) So it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time. And you have to be sort of ready for that. And remember to sleep as much as you can and drink water and exercise. And nutrition is really important. And don't lose sight of those things. All right, one last question for Stephen, and then we'll come back and do our hot seat segment where we'll just ask him a couple of questions about his professional development. In terms of your company now, you're at 14 people. You started back on your own at your apartment, like we said. If you look back on the progression and growth of your company, is there something that stands out in terms of the growth? Like, was there something that happened? Was there something you did, whether you invested in something or... Just saw anything that stands out that says of all the growth that we had, I distinctly remember that this one thing really helped us to grow. I'm sure it was a combination. Is there anything or a couple of things that stand out to you? There were a couple of big wins on projects that just forced me to stand up straighter, be more accountable. Uh, there were larger projects that contracts were fine and required a significant amount of resources from the company. So I had to make a few strategic hires and then execute on those jobs every single day. It forced more careful consideration of the tools that were within the company. Things like how do we organize certain records? What applications can we use digitally that will help us be more efficient when we're on job sites? Uh, How do we store our files, our accounting systems? It just forced us to be better, faster, and hold each other more accountable across the board. I would say one thing that hurt my growth early on was hiring too fast and not carefully enough. I should have taken more time to do more work myself and keep the team leaner. Managing folks is takes resources. Sure. And without the right sort of deputies in place, it was easy to get away from me. Right. So along with that hiring comes a lot more time that you have to work with individuals where you can't be selling or working or doing other things, which then could take longer for that growth to happen. That's right. Kind of push you back a little bit. All right, that's great. Once again, we're talking to Stephen Morris, who's the owner and founder of Grant Engineering. What we're going to do now is just take a short break. We'll be back in a minute with our CE Hot Seat segment, and we'll close this one out. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment, where I'm going to fire off a couple of questions here at Steve to round this out. But before I do that, I do want to once again recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. I have some big news for my civil engineer listeners. If you've been thinking of getting your PE license, but you're unsure of where to start, now is the perfect time to check out PPI2Pass.com. PPI has helped over 4 million engineers pass their licensure exam and become leaders in their fields. Best of all, PPI has recently released the brand new Civil Engineering Reference Manual, the essential book for your PE civil exam prep. Visit ppi2pass.com to order the new Civil Engineering Reference Manual and take one step closer to career advancement. That's PPI, the number two, pass.com. I also have a 20% off promo code available to listeners of this podcast. Use promo code TCE8 on PPI's website for an exclusive 
20% discount. Again, that's TCE8. Stands for the Civil Engineer 8. So TCE8. And by the way, my Civil Engineering Reference Manual from PPI is still sitting on my shelf from when I took the exam back in, geez, 2003 or so. And I just keep it there because it reminds me of partially of the process of preparing, but then of course of getting my license. And I definitely stand by PPI as I've used many of their exam preparation materials myself. All right. So we're back with Stephen Morse, owner and founder of Grant Engineering. We're here to close this episode out with our CE Hot Seat segment. All right, Stephen, you ready to go? Ready. All right. First question. Are there any specific rituals that you practice every day, whether it's a morning ritual or lunchtime ritual, things that you do consistently on a daily basis that have contributed to your success? First thing in the morning, I try to take 20 minutes to sit quietly and whether it's a little bit of yoga or just meditating. But before I even think about grand engineering whatsoever, just quietly think about the day, be thankful for what's ahead of me. And that usually sets up my day pretty good. All right. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you found to be helpful in your personal or professional development? The Richest Man in Babylon is a book that I actually have given to all of my staff over the years. And it is the lessons in there are ones that I try to live by every day. Your own financial health is critical. And some of the basics are universal. And a lot of folks don't get taught them early on by family, friends, or, or in school. So The Richest Man in Babylon, I would say, has changed the direction of my life, actually. I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and we had done a podcast episode about it, kind of just trying to make personal finance just some tips for engineers in general, because, you know, we don't always get that information. And it also was very helpful for me. And I think I'm glad you brought that point up, because I think a lot of us as engineers get bogged down and you get focused on your projects, which is your job, but you tend to forget to think about yourself. And like you said earlier, your physical health and well-being, your financial well-being, I mean, I'm sure that pretty much most people work, they want to make a salary and then they want to build some kind of personal financial wealth, whatever it is. But I think sometimes we get so focused in the job that we forget about our personal well-being and different aspects. So I'm glad that you brought that one up. All right, Stephen, I've got one final question. We call it the critical civil engineering career elevator question, which is if you got in an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, let's say they were you know, younger and earlier on in their career, what is some advice that you would give to them in that short period of time? It's very easy to be overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there, and you don't have to figure it all out very fast. And be patient, especially early on. Don't rush into project management, for example, and don't rush into... Uh, trying to learn how to run a business, actually. Spend time learning the technical side of engineering. You can't run a business without understanding the technical side. You can't. So be patient. Don't try to rush up a, a corporate ladder or into major life decisions related to starting a business. Give it time. Let it breathe. Just focus on the task ahead every day. And over time, it'll present itself in the right direction. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's so true. I see a lot of engineers today coming in young and thinking like, I want to be a manager. I want to be a project manager. I want to move up. And really the best managers that I found have a strong technical grounding and they understand how projects work. 
and then they get to go to that next level and it makes it much easier to manage people and be able to effectively talk with people that are working on your project and your team because you know what they're going through. If they hit a technical glitch, you can empathize with that and you can help them through it um, as opposed to jumping ahead too fast. So I think that would be really sound advice and I'm glad you brought that up. All right, so Stephen, thank you for joining us. What is the website for your company so people can maybe check it out and see what you're up to? Thanks. It is Grant, G-R-A-N-T, P-L-L-C, Professional Limited Liability Company, dot com. And again, we'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. And we will also, uh, we'll link to Stephen's LinkedIn profile so you can check him out as well. All right. Once again, Stephen Morris, owner and founder of Grant Engineering. Thank you for joining me on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks, Anthony. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Stephen Morris today, a really bright and interesting guy. And I just want to mention that since we had the interview, there was one thing that he said he wished he would have said and he didn't. So I told him I would share with you was that he really wished that he would have invested in hiring someone earlier on in his business to look at the finances, someone with a finance background, even though it can be scary hiring someone when you're just starting out. He said that he thought that that would have made even a bigger difference for him. So that's just something to keep in mind if you're ever in that position. I also want to remind everybody that we do monthly webinars at the Engineering Management Institute. And this month's webinar on June 27th will be featuring CNBC contributor and expert Danny Rubin. Danny's going to talk about how to write more effective business emails. I mean, who can't use that, right? He has a great book entitled Wait. How do I write this email? And he is going to put on a webinar and it's awesome. I went through it with him already and looked at the slides. We're all in for a real treat on how to write better business emails. So if you want to join us for the webinar, go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and just click on upcoming webinar. You can watch a video about the session, learn a little bit about Danny and register for that webinar session. And if you're on our mailing list, we'll be sending out a discount for this webinar just because we want to thank our subscribers for being our subscribers. Again, engineeringmanagementinstitute.org, you'll get all of that information. All right, please remember you can find the show notes for this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 88. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode, including the book that Stephen mentioned, which he actually gave me a copy of before I left his office and I read it and it's dynamite. This is what we try to do, right? Get good resources and bring them to you and we will continue to do it. So until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 